Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We are about to break the surly bonds of gravity and punch the face of God. I wish I was a little bit Left Jab Productions present Edge of Sports Radio, where sports and politics collide. And now your host, Dave Zarn. The Schmada Kid. Boom! Edge of Sports Radio, where sports and politics collide. I'm Dave Zarn. Joined as always. By a man who's already doing his pre-deflate gate victory dance. The NFL stick a fork in them. They are so beyond done. Dan Baker, DB. Yes or no? Tom Brady will be playing week four against the Dallas Cowboys. Yes. Yes. I mean, seriously. I would eat my sweat socks after Ooh. a full workout with just a little bit of pepper and salt mixed in a lovely ratatouille. If Tom Brady is suspended for that game. Coach, will you join me for this delicious meal? What did you just call me? A rat? What you call me? You call me a rat? No, ratatouille. Ratatouille. Right? Uh, uh, uh. No, it's a, it's a lovely uh, pastiche of vegetables and tomato. Oh, okay. What show am I? <laughs> My Ali tribute for the show? Yes. I don't have to be who you want me to be. That's beautiful. All right now. I mean, Mark, moving away from that <laughs> ad hominem Ali tribute. How are you, it. sir? I'm great. The real question is, does Tom Brady play week one? Yeah, that's the question. Uh, he will not play week one. I will explain to you everything that's going to happen right now. What's going to happen is that Tom Brady will reach a settlement with the league that has nothing to do with any sort of ball deflation, and it will just be a vague statement about the importance in the future of players to cooperate with investigators, and there will not be one word about the phone in the final tally. Really? Because they don't want any precedent, the NFLPA or Tom Brady, of Tom Brady. Tom Brady, I believe, thinks that what's very important to come out of this for him is two things. One, he's not a cheater. Two, that he did not set a precedent that says that players should have to give their cell phones over for NFL investigations. Mm. I actually think that's a point of principle for him. And I know from talking to my people in the NFLPA that it is a major point of principle for them. Well, we got a hell of a show this week. We are going to talk a little bit about the logic of neoliberalism in sports. Coach is like, what? <laughs> Mark is going to talk about his fantasy draft, and I'm going to talk about why he is perpetuating oppression. And early subject. <laughs> and then we're going to interview uh, one of my favorite writers. Um, her name uh, is Katie Klabish. I always mispronounce her name. We'll get it right when we have her on. But she wrote an amazing, amazing, amazing piece um, about Patrick Kane and the mm-hmm. culture of disbelief about rape. It's my favorite article of the week. We're going to talk to her. Katie Klabusich. Uh, we'll be back after this. 
Edge of Sports Radio with Dave Zirin. We'll return after this. Dave Zirin returns on Edge of Sports Radio, where sports and politics collide. Boom, we're back here on Edge of Sports Radio. Joined by the coach, Kevin Nutt. How you doing, coach? Mama. Me, Mark. How you doing, me, Mark? So good. So glad we have our iTunes uh, podcasting set up correctly now. I was actually getting... I actually got several messages from people where they were concerned about your health coach. What? They thought, I don't know, man. They, I mean, they, they, I guess you come off a tad on the elderly side, and they were concerned that the reason why, why their podcast had not uploaded was because you had some health issues. I have no idea what you're talking about. Like none of those words. <laughs> podcast. Okay. No, no, health issues. I'm, I'm fine. No, as I, I know be. you are. I'm not saying uh, you're not. I'm just saying you have fans and people were worried about you. That's I'm fine, all I'm fans. saying. I love my fans. I'm fine. Your fans should buy your book. What's Absolutely. the name of the book? Playing Time. Playing Tough Time, Truths. Tough Truths. About AU basketball. About AU sports, basketball. Parents and athletes. Youth sports, parents just and athletes. Loaded, just loaded for load, bear. Loaded for bear. I want to talk a little bit <laughs> about if you lived in a hermetically sealed chamber, like a big egg that was putting nutrients into your system, and you went into this egg in 1968, and you're a big sports fan, and you woke up today, and you woke up to learn the following set of facts. You woke up to learn that the Milwaukee Bucks were owned by several of the richest billionaires in the United States as part of a hedge fund consortium, and that they mm-hmm. wanted a new stadium, mm-hmm. and they needed $250 million to mm-hmm. make it happen. And you also woke up to learn that in the last 40, 50 years, mm-hmm. the college football landscape has changed so dramatically that a typical head coach could make $2 million a year in salary be the highest paid person at the school, um, and I hate to correct you, but defensive coordinators are making that number now. No, Not that's head true. Coaches. Yeah. No, that's you, true you too. Elevate. You better go north mm-hmm. of two million. But yeah. I'm sorry. No, no, no. You're right. You're right. Out. No, at the top of the tree, you have uh, coaches making five, six, right. seven million dollars a right. year. I believe that's Nick Saban's latest Saban, deal. Is a yeah. Seven but his, point his, one. His, his DC two. is making one and a half. Or yeah, two. and Lane Kiffin on his roster makes yep. uh, well north of a million. So yep. I woke up to learn this. And remember, when I'm going to sleep in 1968, uh, the best coaches in the country are making twenty, thirty grand mm-hmm. a year. Woody, Woody and Hayes so, and those guys. Yeah, and Paterno. I mean. These guys were making P- – so I, I wake up to learn this, like, holy crap. And then I also wake up to learn that a typical college football player is not only part of this multibillion-dollar system, but that they're being asked to travel coast-to-coast on a constant basis to be able to make it happen. And I learned that a group of players at Northwestern want to organize themselves in a union to be able to have a voice, not even necessarily to get money. Not even necessarily to get a wage, but to have a voice to be able to say, hey, we want to have someone do concussion protocols on the sideline. Hey, we have a grievance with our coach, a.k.a. management. And I woke up. I would think to myself, okay, of course, logically, the government will say that these players have the right to organize themselves and have a voice. After all, they're generating billions of dollars. And Northwestern's not even a football school, and the football program generated between 70 and $75 million in pure profit last year. That's not, once again, not even a football school. So I think, of course, the National Labor Relations Board would say they have the right to organize. And as for that Buck Stadium thing, my word, a couple of billionaires own the, own the team? Well, surely the, if they want a new stadium, they'll pay for it themselves, right? I mean, that's what'll happen, right? I mean, isn't that logical? Go, Dave, go. No, because the logic of neoliberalism, which emerged 
in the early 1970s, otherwise known as Reaganism before Reagan, the economics that came out of the University of Chicago, the Chicago mm-hmm. School of Economics, the idea that said you improve economies by making sure that the rich get richer mm-hmm. and the poor get poorer, mm-hmm. you decimate the middle class, you destroy anything resembling unions in any sort of collective action, and basically your model for a free society means you throw people into the woods basically and say whoever gets to claw themselves out gets to be the people who live and flourish. And those who are stuck in the woods, well, at best, perhaps you can dig your own graves. That model of economic thought has become such the logic in the world of sports that we live in a time, tragically, where these billionaires who own the Milwaukee Bucks are getting $250 million in public funds, Mm -hmm. which, by the way, is the same amount of money as is being cut from the University of Wisconsin education Mm. system. Mm. And, of Mm. course, the Northwestern University Wildcats denied on the most ridiculous, specious, absurdist, cowardly grounds, denied their right to organize. Do you know the basis by which they were denied, Coach? Do you, Mark, do you know the basis by which they were denied? The argument that said they couldn't organize? The NLRB said, look, our jurisdiction is only over private universities, not public ones. And only 17 of the 125 FBS schools, the big football schools, Division I football, only 17 are private and the rest are public. And they said it would destabilize the system, destabilize the system if if they were conveying on 15% of the schools, which is roughly the number, 17 Mm -hmm. out of 125, if they were conveying on them a different status as the other schools. It would destabilize the system. Flimsy. Flimsy. Now, (laughs) why is it flimsy? Why is it flimsy? First and foremost, the implication that the current system is stable is absurd. When you look at the level of scandal, graft that exists in the college football system, I mean, it's a joke to call this current system stable. There are so many lawsuits right now against the NCAA. Mm-hmm. That's a stable system? Mm-hmm. That's not stable at all. The second thing is the idea that one school might pose different advantages to an incoming high school student than another. It's like, hello, <laughs> what do you think Nick Saban is saying when he's sitting down with people in a living room? And he's selling Alabama. He's saying, you know, we're really just like the other 125 schools, except we have really good weather. (laughs) It's like, no, that is not what he's saying at all. He is saying, I have every NFL GM on speed dial. I have a state-of-the-art weight system. Mm -hmm. I have tutors for you round the clock. Training tables. I have training tables. I have underwater treadmills. I have all of this stuff. That's real. That is real. And you know the thing is, too, it's like one of the – and we had um, Andy Schwartz, an economist on the show a couple months Mm -hmm. back who explained this to us in a way that I had never thought of before. I had never thought of it this way before, and it's really interesting. One of the reasons why the University of Alabama actually has better training facilities than any NFL team is because of the surplus value that exists because they don't have to pay players. Wow. So it's like there's extra fat on the system. Extra fat. Mm. 
You know, it's like so this idea that, oh, my God, it would bankrupt the system. It's like it wouldn't bankrupt the system. It might bankrupt the makers of the latest underwater treadmill technology, <laughs> like the laser bath technology that exists at some of these schools. And by the way, we won't even mention the fact the University of Alabama, because I don't even want to be like I'm picking on them. But they rank number 47th in terms of poverty out of 50 states in the United States, including the District of Columbia. They're the 47th, mm. third poorest in the country, mm. ranked 40. Seventh overall in terms of poverty. Wow. Think about that. Yeah. Yet they have all this excess cash because of football, and the students do you themselves know who the don't other, get any of it. Just, uh, do you know who the other states are? I bet one is South Carolina, right? Another SEC school. Yeah, I mean, one is definitely South Carolina. We should look it up. One right. is definitely South Carolina. One is definitely Mississippi, and one is definitely the District of Columbia as well. You know, uh, I thought Alabama. Yeah, Alabama, Mississippi, and South Carolina. And the District of Columbia. Remember, it goes okay. it goes up through fifty one. Right. Okay. So we got to find so forty eight through fifty one. Three in SEC with yeah. big powerful but, schools. But we still got to look them up, and we're right. going to have uh, me and Dan do that. And Dan can't break in after the break to do that. Right. But because that's a that's a perfectly fine question because I would love to see how it would correlate. And it's it's also it's not a coincidence at all that these are former Jim Crow states. Yes, that sir. There's, Thank I mean, you. there's like the entrenched level of 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 anti unionism. Because racism was used to break union organizers, and so you never had a stable industrial base and an industrial middle class that was built out of industrial labor. And this is the fruits that come out of that. And when you couple in the fact that the southeast of the United States is where you have year-round sunshine and the ability to play football 365 days a year means that it also becomes the soil to create pro athletes. Uh, But when you have poverty, institutionalized racism, and year-round sunshine. So all of that acts together to create this hub of college football and it also acts to create this hub of exploitation because it's not an area where people are conditioned to fight back mm. at all mm. hey let's go to break right now we're going to cover a little more of this when we get back yeah. but then i want to hear what you guys think but then we're also going to talk about uh marks exercises in dictatorial um imperial oversight what? AKA fantasy, fantasy? Football. what are you talking we'll be back about after this one one two don't One, two, move. Three, Dave Zirin will be right back with more Edge of Sports Radio. You're listening to Edge of Sports Radio with Dave Zirin. Boom, we're back here on Edge of Sports Radio. Just looked up the poorest states in the United States. Dan found a bit of a different list than me. But it is interesting that if you look at the 10 poorest states in the U.S., it is a combination of SEC schools, like it's majority of them are SEC schools, Mississippi, Alabama, South Carolina, Georgia. And then you also have West Virginia, which is not an SEC school, but, you know, it's got its own football culture, certainly. Mm-hmm. People saw the Randy Moss documentary, you know what I'm oh, yeah. talking about, and its own history of poverty. And then you have schools that are strong, uh, states that are strongly affected uh, by issues of immigration. you got Arizona, you've got New Mexico, and that has everything to do with uh, something that's been very much in the media, the Mexican border. Donald Trump, you are such a chump. Donald Stump. Uh, Donald Stump, all of that. Not a big fan, Donald Trump, not a fan at all. Uh, moving on from yeah. that right away, I'll tell you this, man. I'm so guilty about the fact that I was a New Jersey Generals fan back in the day, uh, owned by Donald yes. Trump, watching Doug Flutie, Brian Sype, Herschel Walker. I mean, who can't root for Doug Flutie, though? You have to root for him. Hey, let's get back to the subject at hand, because you have the logic of neoliberalism on this situation, where you have corporate welfare that goes into the richest people in the United States to build sports stadiums, and then you've got 
when players, college athletes, try to organize themselves and say, hey, we want to be able to have a seat at the table, they get smacked down by the National Labor Relations Board. So what does that tell us? It tells us there's a collusion of government and capital. That's what it tells us. So what is the answer? How do we possibly fight that? The hope in this, and this is why people shouldn't be you know, reaching for the arsenic like coaches right now. Mm-hmm. The hope in this is conveyed in the very name of the Northwestern team. What's the name of the Northwestern team, coach? Wildcats. Wildcats. What's a wildcat? A wildcat is a strike mm-hmm. that takes place mm-hmm. when people walk off the job without there being any pre-announcement or anything like that. And that power is still there. That's what the young men did a year ago at, correct me if I'm wrong, I believe it was uh, Jackson State where that took place among the, the HBCU schools yes. because there were staff infections in the locker room. They made the decision that they were not. No, it was a Grambling. Grambling. I'm sorry. Yeah, it was Grambling. I'm sorry. It was Grambling. Yeah, right. And they were about to play Jackson State. Mm-hmm. I apologize. And because um, the fact that it was Grambling was such a huge deal because, of course, Eddie Ro- legacy of Eddie Robinson and mm-hmm. the legacy of Doug Williams, mm-hmm. both part of that story. And to see people at Grambling have the courage to do that. And they did it because they were in a situation of privation. Like they were being asked to take these insanely long bus rides. They were getting all sorts of medical issues. Uh, The weight room was dangerous. So they took their step. But I think you're going to see similar things happen at schools that are caked in largesse. Like schools where there's so much conspicuous wealth and consumption that it becomes unbearable for teams to deal with this. And when that takes place, Coach, what you're going to see then is you're not going to see anybody rushing to the National Labor Relations Board. Because keep in mind, they didn't have to go to the NLRB now. Like Northwestern could have recognized them as a union. The NCAA could have recognized them as a union. They made the decision not to. Mm. They made the decision not to. And so I think they will make the decision to recognize the unions of the future if players refuse to take the field because there's just honestly too much money at stake. And that's the thing that gives the game away to such a degree. You have so many people making so much money off of these kids. Mm-hmm. So many. I mean, from from the billions to the millions to the thousands to the hundreds to the tens. They Okay, I can understand grambling because... Although the kids think they may go pro, they're not, and Grambling is at the bottom. But I can—I don't know about you're going to see kids leaving Alabama or going to go on strike at Alabama in the top-tier schools because they're not going to be on TV. They're going to help the pro chances. That's Man, that's, you're asking a whole lot of 19-, 20-year-old men. I agree. Young men. And, nope. and, on, and honestly, if, if you're talking about the NCAA choosing to recognize these unions, I think that's huge, too. I think they'd rather bite the bullet in terms of the, the loss of the, the small short-term profit if it means that they're able to keep the kind of system in the long term. So it's going to be tough. Yeah, it's not going to be easy by any stretch. It would also, a lot of it, as so often is the case with politics, it would have to be timing. I mean, before the right bowl mm-hmm. game. Yeah. I, mean, I mean, there's a big difference, to, to speak to your point, Mark, there's a big difference between a team doing it right before, say, um, you know, a week three showdown uh, with Miss with Dak Prescott in Mississippi State. Hey, do, and, do not talk down about Dak Prescott. Oh, jeez. Mark <laughs> has him in his pre-fantasy draft for 2016. He can't, he can't throw the football. He's not a pro quarterback. Yeah. But there's a big difference between that and doing it right before, say, this new playoff system, which mm-hmm. is just a huge moneymaker mm-hmm. all around. So it'll be very interesting to see how this. And also I think social media is going to play a role in this too. Big role. 
because I mean we've already seen like some players take some after my, they might have had a couple too many drinks take to Twitter and talk about their experiences with some of these coaches and it's been fascinating mm-hmm. eye-opening type of thing when they do that it'll be very interesting to see what happens going forward like I just don't think this is over by a long shot I hope not mm-hmm. and I have hopes because I think the contradictions of the system are just too profound like there's just too much weight there's no moral center to it and that means anytime the NCAA lays a fiat down it's not taken seriously it's not taken with any sort of respect hmm. okay switching gears I am shocked. Ten years ago, I wrote an article talking about how fantasy football was the sort of thing that people did because they wanted to identify with management. And guess what? It has somehow take for some reason identifying with management has become like you know the new Coca Cola. It's become Pixar. Everybody now plays fantasy. I'm like the last person. Not playing fantasy football. The last holdout, not playing fantasy football. So I almost, it's gone from this thing where we do a segment every year where I excoriate Mark for playing fantasy football. Where yeah, now, too. yeah, yeah, well, she's <laughs> Mark, I feel like. Is, I was playing 10 years ago, by the way. So, I know. Yeah. I mean, that's why I coach. I, I mean, was playing 20 years ago. But go ahead. Get out of here. You weren't playing fantasy Absolutely. football 20 years ago. Absolutely. Who was your top pick 20 years ago? Do you it was remember? Like back in those days. Was it like Wilbert Dan Montgomery? <laughs> okay. All right. Oh, yeah. Harold Carmichael? <laughs> Harold Carmichael. Was he playing? No, uh, yeah. 20. In 20 years. Seriously. It is funny because. That would be like pe- Emmett Smith. People like Mark ago. would say, well, wait a minute. Without a. Without a um, a manager, how did you how did you stop? We faxed stuff. Yeah. We faxed. We mailed we mailed our rosters to people. But anyway, go ahead. I'm, that's geez. that's that's way dirty. That's far that's far worse than me. <laughs> I mean, my God, you faxed stuff twenty years ago. Ninety five. Oh my God. Like who has Stan Humphreys? Can you get Stan Humphreys? All right. Maybe not. All right, so move, so moving. Yeah, no, no. I'd be like, who has Cordell Stewart? <laughs> right? Slash, man. Yeah. But moving it straight yes. to you, Mark. What, what were some of your fantasy wins in your draft? Because I mean, the one thing about fantasy that I do find interesting is I had just my buddy Zach Zills doing it for the first time mm-hmm. or the second time, uh, but he said the first time didn't count. And he he was talking about this guy Amir Abdullah, yeah. who he's mm-hmm. really excited that he got. And I was kind of like, Amir Abdullah. I wasn't even sure what team Amir Abdullah was on. He's telling me this. And I knew he had played for Nebraska. And so we we went on YouTube and we we looked up some of his moves in the preseason. And so that's kind of an interesting part of fantasy to me because it it gives you a sense of trying to then figure out who might be the people who emerge this coming year. And that's kind of interesting. So, Mark, who are some of the people you were really psyched to pick up in fantasy and who are some of the people who you're really pissed that you missed? Okay. Uh, in terms of players that I got that I'm really excited about, I think the Jordan Matthews, who is a second-year wide receiver playing for the Philadelphia Eagles, played mainly out of the slot last year. They're still talking, Chip Kelly's talking like he might still be playing out of the slot this year, but he is by far, in terms of numbers, going to be their, their top wide receiver. He's 6'3", he's, this, he's a Marcus Colson type, but with actual speed on that. I think in terms of uh, the amount of receptions, the amount of volume he's going to do, Philadelphia's going to put up a ton of stats, and he's going to be a good part of that. I'm really excited about that. Who's also, throwing him the ball? Bradford. Sam Bradford. What? Sam Bradford until he can't stand okay. up anymore. Sam Jeez. Bradford until, right. until while he's still there, it'll be Bradford. And I Don't think sleep he's. I think Bradford's a good sleeper in terms of a quarterback yep. as well. You just maybe might have to bite the bullet and draft Sanchez and start him when. Bradford goes down as well. Uh, honestly, if I'm talking about a sleeper, a quarterback, I spent a lot of my money. This was an auction draft. I really enjoy auction drafts rather than, than 
kind of snake draft so you can kind of take your allotment of money and spend it on the players that you really are excited about so you can spend it on like four really big stars and then try and pick the sleepers to, to fill out the rest of your team. I think Ryan Tannehill for the for the Miami Dolphins is going to have a really great year. And I was able to pair him with with Matt Stafford as two really cheap, inexpensive quarterbacks who've come off not great years. I think one of the two of them is going to turn out really good and, and, and really turn my season around. Okay, who's Tannehill throwing to? Uh, Jarvis Landry. Jarvis Landry. Okay. Jarvis Landry. They Ray got Jordan there. Cameron. Cameron's there. Cameron's hurt, isn't he? Cameron's uh, not hurt. The first yet, round pick yet. was a was a. The uh, Devonte Parker is coming off a uh, hamstring issue. He'll he'll be their number one wide receiver. He's a big fast guy. Mm-hmm. I like Parker. Okay, okay. Now, what about you, Coach? Same mm-hmm. question. Have you done your draft yet? No, my draft is uh, not until uh, the uh, day after Labor Day. Is there anybody you're? Ex- isn't the season already like two weeks old by then? No, it starts that Thursday. I'm just but... kidding. <laughs> is is there anybody who you you're like excited to want to get your hands on your grubby paws, your mitts? Uh, yeah. Uh, both of you got grubby paws. <laughs> You're both this disgusting <laughs> managerial Bob Kraft wannabes. You sicken me. Uh, Who do you want? Jer- Jer- Jeremy Hill. Uh, really? Going to, yeah, he's going to have a big year. You, he had. Uh, what, he, what about Gio Bernard? Is he, is he not going to break he's, up? He's, he's, he's no. He's just coming out on third down, catch a little fu- uh, pass out on the flat. And then um, Julio Jones is going to be special. Watch. He, I mean, he's big, six four, runs like a deer, strong. Matt Ryan's a good quarterback. They have a cake schedule. He's going to light it up. I'm, I'm a, talking about like 14 wrong. touchdowns. I do. I do want to throw out the fact, you know, beginning of the year, it's really nice. Honestly, you nobody's going to talk about up. the Jaguars, but people are going to talk about Allen Robinson and T.J. Yeldon and those kind of players that are the sleepers that people are really excited about. Way more than anybody in Jacksonville is actually about that team. Get oh, in the wow. season. That's fun. Come on, DC. What do you got to say? He's he's still over there spinning so who's your, in a circle. Who's your sleeper, Dan? No, I was only just saying that Julio Jones doesn't count as a sleeper. He's already a star. I mean, but I'm talking about a huge year. I'm gonna take him ahead of Dez and some of those. Oh, no. you know, some he, of those he's guys. Saying, he's saying he's saying 100 plus catches, which is, I mean, how, how many games does he play? Well, he stays out. That's yeah. with everybody, though. Yeah, that's with everybody. <laughs> I'll tell you this though. Um, Dez is gonna be off the page this year, and I know I'm not that I'd have given fantasy advice because I don't believe in it on general principle. <laughs> But watch Ryan Fitzpatrick. Dead Ooh. serious about that. Quarterback eh, for the Jets. I could see that. 17 touchdowns, 8 picks, 61% last year. This year, much better receivers. Let's go to break. We'll be wow. back after this. Dave Zirin will continue with Edge of Sports Radio after the break. Dave Zirin returns on Edge of Sports Radio, where sports and politics collide. Boom, we're back here on Edge of Sports Radio, joined by the coach coming down. How you doing, coach? My man. Yeah, me, Mark. How you doing, me, Mark? So good. Yeah, our next guest is the host of the brand new, just announced radio show, Katie Speaks, on Netroots Radio. So excited. This was just announced yesterday. We're all going to be fans of the Katie Speaks show on Netroots Radio. Uh, she's an author. She's written for Rolling Stone, BuzzFeed, Truth Out. And she is a terrific Twitter follower. I follow, excuse me. And she just wrote a terrific article called Patrick Kane and the Culture of Disbelief About Rape. Really wanted to speak to her on the show. Her name is Katie Klebusik. Katie, how are you doing? Hi, Dave. I'm so excited to be on your show. Oh, so happy to have you here. Uh, I apologize in advance when you listen to the show at the start where I mispronounce your name terribly. Um, uh, it's okay. It's actually been a, it's been a joke for my whole life. You can misspell it like nine ways and still end up at my website. It's kind of handy. Nice. <laughs> and also you get to be Katie, like Madonna or Cher. It's like you just get to be Katie, right? Sure. We'll say so. We'll say so. <laughs> so first of all, I thought it was really interesting, like your starting point. 
about your article about Patrick Kane, uh, the culture of disbelief about rape. Patrick Kane, of course, a star player, icon for the Chicago Blackhawks. So I want you to start by saying just a little bit about about who you are and how you came to this story, from what perspective you're coming to this Patrick Kane story. Sure. I was really excited that Ari Shrelichak reached out to me and asked me to do this piece. Um, Sometimes stories like this, as you know, sort of get written off as just a sports story, and it's so much more than that. Um, I lived in Chicago until a couple of years ago. I'm I'm from the Midwest. Um, At the time that the Blackhawks reappeared on our televisions after a generation without um, old man words seemed to think that if people could watch the game or even listen to the first period on the radio that they wouldn't go in person. Mm-hmm. And so it wasn't until he passed away that his son Rocky put the Blackhawks back in front of our faces. And since we'd invented flat screen TV, we could even see the puck. <laughs> and so as a city, um, as, a, as, a, as a very sports-centric city, Chicago sort of relearned about hockey together. We could watch in bars and no one could be like ashamed that they didn't know rules. And, and it was very, it was a very coming together moment for sports culture in Chicago. Um, and they had just signed these two young star players and they were good and it was exciting and they won like immediately. Um, and because, because specifically the Blackhawks, um, the Blackhawks players, since forever have have always gone out a lot in the city they've always been seen as really accessible for fans um it helps that the nhl isn't as popular as the other big three so they're sort of more accessible in general because they have a smaller fan base but people really felt like they knew the players really quickly and it's it's part of why i think having this particular player uh, involved in allegations like this caused a lot of caused a lot of mixed fan reaction even from people like me a, a rape survivor and a, and a feminist and a writer and an advocate my first thought was oh my god i hope it's not true well let me um, ask you this um, i understand it uh let me because you start your you, you, you start your piece by talking about the, that you were a bartender in chicago and mm-hmm. you say everybody had a Patrick Kane story. What were some of the stories about Patrick Kane that were sort of common currency in Chicago? It was he was sort of seen as the stereotypical like frat boy guy, but in that good old boy forgivable way. Some of which is an unfortunate part of rape culture, but some of it is just part of knowing people. Where you know our friends make unfortunate decisions, and we sort of excuse it because we know them. Um, and and like or care about them or just have a vested interest in them. So he was just sort of out a lot and around. And the Chicago serving industry is a pretty small um, small community. And despite despite the despite the cab driver assault, despite rumors out of Wisconsin, despite all of that, he always treated service staff really well, and so he mm. had this—he had this reputation um, among us as someone you wouldn't mind having in your bar, sort of, sort of the anti-Ben Roethlisberger. Right, like the sort of thing where Patrick Kane comes into the bar and it's like, okay, this is going to be a good time. Right, and I mean Ben Roethlisberger's reputation with service staff is so pervasive. I knew about it in Chicago. Mm. I mean, that's the service people travel and they talk when they travel and they tend to find industry bars, which is the kind of bar that I worked in. And you hear the stories uh, about which players you don't want in your bar or if they show up, you're, uh, 
And Patrick Kane was never one of those people. So, I mean, he, sure, he probably drank too much, and we all, were all waiting for the day that he did something stupid that was going to affect his play on the ice. But no one would have made this kind of leap. No one would have expected. I, we have this idea. Um, Kate Harding has a new book coming out, Asking for It is the name of it, on, on rape culture. And she, she, she explains that rape is one of the only one of the only crimes where we never describe the assailant or, or the person who's alleged as a rapist. Rape is a crime where we don't like to think of it being committed by a person. We just don't. We just can't make that leap as human beings, and that's going on a lot right now. I mean, we would have we would have seen him as someone who would have gotten in trouble in sort of the old school good old boys way, but no one would have thought that this was happening. So let's talk about the media coverage thus far. Something your article touches on. How do you how do you feel the Chicago media, the national sports media, which traditionally does not approach issues of sexual assault well? To put it mildly, the history is not good. Uh, how do you feel? But, of course, there's also been a rise in consciousness of a lot of voices, I think largely because of voices like yours on social media, like the demands on them that they have to start doing this better. So so that those are some of the dynamics at play. And so with those dynamics at play, how do you feel like the Chicago media and the national media have done in terms of talking about what we know so far about the case? I've been really extraordinarily impressed by my hometown media, and I listened to a lot of sports radio when I lived there. I was a, I was a score junkie for sure, and I don't know how much of this is a result of it being sort of the post-Ray Rice era, um, as David Hawke like, described it. And that could be. I mean, like you said, there's a different kind of consciousness, and so we're talking about things slightly differently. But I don't think that that having happened is enough to explain how well specifically the Chicago media um, and sports writers are doing long read pieces on not just not just like the details of the piece or like the, the latest thing, but I mean the the trip has a piece out um, from today by Jared Hopkins and Stacey St. Clair that goes into they go into stats on what it's like to be a sexual assault. Um, survivor and to try to report and have things prosecuted. They do this long piece about the prosecutor who has to make the decision about whether or not to take this in front of a grand jury um, or to pursue an indictment. And I mean, they're not dancing around it. They cite they cite stats from uh, the National Violence Against Women survey. They talk about like how how hard it is to get a case like this tried. Um, I'm just I'm not seeing any victim blaming. I'm not even hearing. What I was hopeful, what I was hoping this would be the case, but I just I don't expect this anymore of teams or leagues or anyone. Um, but even even Rocky Wirtz's statement, the very short one, um, I mean he hasn't been indicted. They're not, he's not going to say anything bad about him in the press. You know he said he's hopeful, but he's not going to talk about it. And he didn't he didn't do what we're so used to hearing, like the Harbaugh's do, where they you know but this is our guy like we're going to stand by him but they're avoiding that stuff that mm-hmm. that sort of that reinforces blaming the victim and the and the immediate impulse to disbelieve and i've been i've been very like very pleased to see how it's been covered okay so what about and then there's of course when we talk about coverage these days we're not just talking about the official media where there's then of course social media mm-hmm. the voice of the quote unquote fan yeah. I'm sure you haven't done a full exhaustive survey, but based upon what you've seen, (laughs) 
How have the Blackhawks faithful responded to these uh, allegations slash, uh, I guess we wouldn't call them charges yet because he hasn't been officially charged, but the, the allegations that are out there? Right. There's that unfortunate hashtag. Um, and I, I mean, I read through the whole thing uh, before I published that piece just to, just to see what was on there and to see if it was anything interesting. Um, and it was exactly what you would expect, um, the, the support 88 hashtag. And it, I mean, it was mostly people going out of their way to say to say awful things about a potential victim. Um, I mean, they're just, it's exactly what, it's, but it's what women on the internet who deign to, you know, have an opinion and express it pub- semi-publicly expect to hear. Um, it's, it's what I hear when I discuss my, uh, my survivor story. I mean, I'm, I'm more likely to get rape threats after disclosing that I'm a rape survivor than any other topic that I talk about. So, so nothing that's said on Twitter really surprises me, except... When, this, when my piece published and, and you put it out, and you have a huge following and several other people put it out. And I quoted Tim Buffo's piece and a couple others that were really great. It got a lot of attention really quickly. I didn't get any negative feedback. I mean, don't go read the comments. There's some dumb stuff in there because people troll the Arch Reality Check website. But really, most of what I got from people was, thank you, thank you, I felt conflicted, thank you for expressing that, I felt conflicted, just over and over again, and that was from people who are gamers, like, and, and I don't mean that in, like, the new way we use that word derogatorily, I mean, like, the homers, like, the people with, yeah. you know, Stanley Cups in their, you know, in their, in their avatars, they're all wearing jerseys, and it's all hawks, everything, we're really appreciative, and that, that was really... That was great as a fan and, and a survivor to like hear that kind of support from you know my well, fellow teammates. Well, it's, a, are, it's uh, a small fans. thing, and I'll, I'll just speak. I'm speaking directly to the audience now. It's a small thing, but if, if anybody who follows me on Twitter says anything that's rapey or anything like that, they're immediately blocked because mm-hmm. I actually want to try to form it as a community where people can debate without going there. And I would just encourage other people that to, to do that too. Never hesitate to block people. Um, fight for the community that you want to have. It's not an open forum. It's your forum. So um, now that I've done that little PSA of how to use Twitter, um, I have one other question for you because this is a bit of an uncomfortable question, Katie, but it's the one that I keep coming back to because let's face it. One of two things happened in this case. Either Patrick Kane committed this heinous crime – against women or he is being falsely accused of this heinous crime and probably targeted for that because he's Patrick Kane. Mm-hmm. Now, one of those two things is true. I am very, very, very skeptical of the idea that you hear so often about athletes being targets for these kinds of false accusations. I'm skeptical about it because I feel like the amount that we hear that they could be targets relative to the amount of times they actually have been charged or anything. I mean, it's like there are very few cases. So either athletes and their people are paying a lot of people off who otherwise would be falsely crying rape or that's Mm -hmm. not actually a reality in the whatever you want to call it in the social landscape of athletes on the road. So – I'm asking you this, I guess, on that. What are your, given how rarely that actually happens, 
what do you think is going to be the end result here, just based on the tea leaves you're seeing? And I guess that'll be my last question for you here. That is the, the myth of false reporting um, is, is one of the biggest, most, uh, most destructive uh, rape myths that we've got. And that's why I say in the piece that, like, you can come at me all you want with, he's innocent until proven guilty, but, like, I'm not on the jury and I'm not the prosecutor, so y'all can go away with that. Um, I, I would love it if it wasn't true, but statistically, um, I'm not just believing her because I'm a survivor. I'm believing her because statistically she's telling the truth. Mm-hmm. Um, something between maybe 2 to 8% of reports uh, that are that are made in sexual assault cases are are false, and that is way way lower than any other than any other crime. Um, it is it is it is really really traumatizing to report being sexually assaulted. Um, something like sixty percent mm-hmm. of people who report are re-victimized by law enforcement. So and and mm-hmm. and we know that. So the, so people don't report. Um, it's really so unlikely that this isn't true, and, and just. For people who don't, they're, oh, the statistics, and we don't know, and the studies are biased, like, name me, name me three famous rape victims. Like, name me three people who got rich and famous off of accusing, you know, a famous person of rape. Right. Uh, there, there aren't any. Like, you, you can't, it doesn't work. Like, like the false, false accusation of a famous person doesn't result in, in being famous. My good friend, Wakatuib and Jimki, started the survivor privilege hashtag for exactly that reason last year. George Will, the idiot columnist from mm-hmm. Post, said that we were trying to profit off of our survivor status. And she was like, really? Really? Like the $98,000 that I owe to a university that expelled me when I reported that kind of privilege? Oh. Mm. And that's, that's typical. Rape, reporting rape is also expensive. Um, so I think what's really important about this case is that she did, that this is how rape happens. You either meet someone or you're on a date or you're in a party and that's 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 who who commits this crime people that you have a comfort level around and she also did everything that people demand of victims she immediately went and found her friend they left they immediately went to the hospital she called her family on the way there and then they called law enforcement like the second they got there so she did everything right so we'll see how it's handled because yeah i mean i i'm hopeful that it's handled well, but if it's not, it's going to be an indictment on the entire system. But and handled well, though, also means that this person who you've admired for quite some time is somebody who you don't want him to be. Yeah, I mean, that's my conflict. Really, isn't that I'm surprised about that. I mean, I'm just not anymore. I mean, I right. like, I'm just I'm just not surprised to hear those things of of people, um, unfortunately. What what's going to be challenging for me is what's happened. You and I have talked about this, and it happens a lot with football fans right now, um, both college and professional. But we we wonder how long we're going to be able to enjoy the game with the stuff that we know. Like, mm. how long can I still watch? And like, with the suspension of disbelief and just get engaged in this pastime that I love, that, that's a, a cultural thing. For some of us, it's a family thing that like, I grew up watching sports. And at some point when is there so much when is there so much from outside off the field mm-hmm. or off the ice where i'm no longer even able to enjoy like the thing that i use as my you know escapism well, and that's what's really sad i don't yeah. know how i'm going to feel 
I don't know how I'm going to feel about wearing the jersey in my closet. Um, luckily, it does not have his name on the back, but I, I don't know how I'm going to feel about it. I think it'll have a lot to do with how the Blackhawks handle the situation. And ideally, and hopefully the more people who ask the question that you're asking uh, can act as a cultural corrective um, on the sports themselves. And, I mean, that's the hope anyway. The more that we drag these things into the light, that it won't make sports unbearable, but it'll actually serve to actually reclaim the space of sports. And I would love create that. a higher standard for all of us, whether we're fans watching, players playing, management managing, but just a higher standard because of how much we invest in it emotionally. Katie, thank you so much for joining us. Congratulations so much on the new radio show. And please send send me tweets, send at Edge of Sports all the information on it, and I promise to tweet it out. I will. I will. It doesn't start until September fifth, so um, I will get that to you ahead of time. I really. I can't say how I, I can't say enough how much I appreciate the way that you handle specifically this issue, both in sports and out, and also for having me on. Thanks so much, Dave. Oh, thank you so much, Katie. Uh, that was Katie Klabusik. I hope I did that all right, man, because she's got this amazing profile and amazing writing ability and amazing speaking ability and a name that gives me fits. Hey, we got to go to break. We'll be back after this to wrap up the show. Edge of Sports Radio with Dave Zirin will return after this. Edge of Sports Radio returns. Here's Dave Zirin. Boom, we're back here on Edge of Sports Radio to wrap up the show. I'm joined by two very special guests at the end. We've got my daughter, Sasha Zirin. Say hi, Sasha. Hi. And my son, Jacob James, Khalil Zirin. Say hi, Jacob James. Hey. Awesome, awesome. All right, Sasha, question for you right away. I know you played some sports this last year. What did you play? How was the experience? How did your team do? Talk to us. I played basketball last winter. Yeah. And I was the left wing, and it was really, really fun. Now I went to several I... games where your team won like 40-4. to four. Did you ever see the other team actually break down in tears, or was it all good fun? Nobody really got upset, but there was one team we played. It was a close game, but they lost, and they were they were bad sports about it. And Sasha, is there too much sexism in sports? What do you think? It all depends on the sport you're talking about. That's a very, very good point. That's a very good point. It depends on the sport itself. Do we want sports with sexism, yes or no? No. Absolutely not. Very well said. Jacob James, what sports did you play this year, buddy? In 2015, in spring, I was on a soccer team, which I didn't really win all of the games, but I did crush lots of people. You crushed lots of people. Is that what sports should be, crushing people? No. What should sports be about? It should be about fun. Very good. Now, is it true that you learned how to score a goal by actually modifying a slide tackle? Did you really do that? Yes. Now, how does that look? When you do that slide tackle shot, does it really, really hurt the inside of your leg? Not at all. Not at all? You can do that? (laughs) So you're mad bendy. You got mad flexible skills. Yes. Very good to hear it. And Jake, who's your favorite music group these days? Who are you listening to? Um, usually New Kids on the Block. New Kids on the Block. What's your favorite New Kids song? Mm, probably The Right Stuff. The Right Stuff. Can you do a quick line from The Right Stuff for us? Uh, no, 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 nothing. No, it's, oh. That's hanging tough. That is hanging tough. All right, thank you, Sasha. And Sasha, last question goes to you. You've been doing some weightlifting? Yeah. Do you recommend it for others? Yes, it's fun. You feeling strong? She doesn't really do that. Yes, she does. And you know what? Jacob, you know why you just said that? 
Why? She's getting so strong, she could pound you like a mushroom. Yep. And he knows it, hence the fear. Hey, for everybody out there in Edge of Sports Land, I'm Dave Zirin. We are out of here. Everybody say peace. Peace! Edge of Sports Radio, where sports and politics collide. Tune in next week and go to edgeofsports.com. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger. Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.